why. The question of why is a powerful one. It peels back layers like shadows to reveal both particular catalysts and hidden realms of meaning. It's something that we most often ask in the dark. We most urgently ask it in the midst or aftermath of a crisis. For example, why did he die? Well, because his brain stopped working. Why? Because it was deprived of oxygen. Why? Because he couldn't breathe. Why? Because an officer was kneeling on his neck. Why? Because he ignored all of his training otherwise during the arrest. Why? Because it turns out they had a bad history, a personal feud between the two of them. Why? Because the officer lost a very well-paying side gig providing security for a bar to that person whose neck he was kneeling on. Why? Because it turns out he's a pretty angry person and he was too rough with customers. Why? I don't know. You can replace the obvious analogy and, and example of, of George Floyd with things far more personal. Why was this, did this freak accident happen that now costs thousands of dollars in medical bills that I can't afford? Why was I laid off? Why does a person who I can never even fathom ever cheating on have an affair? Why did my parents divorce? Why do we struggle with infertility? Why is SIDS even a thing, never mind well-known? Fleming Rutledge whose book is a collection of sermons on Advent is, I think, the best out there. She says, Advent begins in the dark. And this morning's sermon uh, title, it says, Advent is not for sissies, is, sissies, is a copy-paste ripoff of one of her recent tweets to that fact. Why is Advent not for sissies? Because Advent is an honest, protracted gaze into the dark in search of a brighter light. The best Advent movie of all time, and you can try to convince me otherwise, and I'm open to it, but you will fail. And by the way, best Advent movie is not the best Christmas movie because we all know that that's diehard. The best Advent movie of all time, and I, my favorite, and I think the longest one-shot action sequence in cinema history is from the a fantastic, amazing movie, Children of Men. The Children, Children of Men, I love this movie in part because it, it actually, it, it does the same kind of thing that Revelation chapter 12 does, which uses images and symbols in the way that Children of Men uses narrative and, and different kinds, but still really robust and amazing and beautiful symbols to communicate a really surprising hope in the midst of deep and utter darkness. And children of Men, by the way, I'm just going like, to let me, let me say at the very beginning that um, I would offer a spoiler alert, but one, um, because I'm going to be using the Children of Men as an analogy for the whole sermon, uh, but one, um, you can't leave right now. I have a captive audience, so it's not like you can leave even if you don't want a spoiler. Um, and two, it was, uh, the movie came out in 2006, so it it's your fault if you haven't seen it yet. 
But it starts in the same place that our, the sermon does this morning, in the dark, that Advent does. It starts in the dark with a dystopian world. It takes place in the year 2027, which is only five years from now, which is disturbing, with a worldwide, unexplainable, and unavoidable, incurable infertility. And so people are not allowed, they're unable to have children anymore. And so that means that there is a, it is a world without a future, where, the, where mankind is doomed to eventually and rather immediately and urgently die out. And so it takes place in a time between that realization and it actually happening, and there is no hope of a legacy. There's no hope of a good answer to the question, why? And so out comes humanity's darkest impulses. They reign across the world, and the world descends into chaos. The United Kingdom is the only working and stable kind of government, but it's fascist in the extreme. And they imprison and execute illegal immigrants. The movie opens with the news that the youngest living person, 18 years old, the last person born on earth was killed and murdered by a fan because as the youngest person on earth, he was a celebrity because everybody followed along with his life because they wanted desperately to cling on to something that they knew was di disappearing with every day. Out walks the protagonist, his name is Theo, he's played by Clive Owen, he does an amazing job. He walks out of a coffee shop where people are enraptured watching the TV at this news, and they're just stunned. And he walks out of the coffee shop and shortly walked like 10 feet down the street, and the coffee shop he just came out of explodes because it was attacked by a terrorist with a terrorist bombing. And it only gets darker from there. <laughs> so why do I love this movie? And why am I talking about this for Advent? Because it, is a, it involves a brutal honesty, an honest look at the darkness of human depravity when everything that we think we, that, that, we prov that we depend on for hope is stripped away. And that brutal honesty is a powerful catalyst for a brilliant hope. Revelation chapter 12 provides that hope in the darkness. When we're asking the question of why, Revelation 12 gives us the ultimate cosmic answer that if you drill down deep enough, eventually you will reach Revelation 12, verses 1 through 17. It is, it is the why, is the answer to every why asked in the midst of brutal, sorry, in the midst of darkness. And it's honest about that darkness, but it's also hopeful about the light that has defeated it. So let me read, I'm going to read verses 1 through 5 and then 7 through 9 here. This is Revelation and a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and in, on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a, a, giant, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. 
Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. A theologian named Dennis Johnson describes the book of Revelation as a book of symbols in motion. A book of symbols in motion. Those symbols have many layers, and often they have more than one meaning. And for example, the, the, the woman in, this, in, in the first half of what we read is a mother and is, is clearly and is being described through symbols as the mother of Israel. Right? The 12 stars around her head being the 12 tribes of Israel. But at the same time, it's also very clearly Mary who bore Jesus on Christmas morning. The dragon is Satan, the deceiver. He has heads and horns and diadems, each of which correspond to different meanings of cunning wisdom, great power, and influence over the world. And these symbols are both references to to something that came from before sin was, was a thing and also what's happening even now in this heavens and earth being at war to provide a cosmic why. Dennis Johnson says, describing this portion of Revelation, he says, the mortal combat declared by God in Genesis 3.15 against the serpent of old, the devil and Satan, is seen in the opposition of the two seeds or offspring throughout history. Cain against Abel, Ishmael against Isaac, Esau against Jacob, Edom against Israel, Saul against David. From the expulsion from Eden, God's people have been an expectant mother, awaiting the birth of the seed, the offspring, who would champion their cause against Satan, the liar, accuser, and murderer. We see here that the serpent deceived Eve, the mother of humanity, but was hoodwinked by Mary, the mother of the Messiah. This has dramatic implications for every time, you know, as you're reading the Christmas story and as you're reading Luke 2, Luke 1 through 2, and you're watching Charlie Brown Christmas and they start reading the Christmas narrative there, which is my favorite, right? That King Herod, who wanted the the wise men to tell him where this Messiah was being born so he could murder him and protect his kingdom, he was more than an insecure megalomaniac, he was the gaping maw of a dragon, Mary was more than just the mother of of the Messiah. She's a new Eve, the mother of a new creation. The angels proclaimed to the shepherds not just a birth announcement that you might get in the mail otherwise. They proclaim a summons to witness the victory that hell did its worst to prevent. So if nothing else, if you get nothing out of the sermon today, I really, I, I want and hope that every time you see a nativity scene out in front of a church this year, that you picture a pitched battle between angels and demons hovering above the donkeys and sheep. That you imagine a Messiah born in a manger that's just out of the dragon's reach, a hair's breadth away from a serpent's fangs. Because that, that is the ultimate spiritual reality of the nativity of Advent. It's the context for everything that we do every year in Christmas morning. That darkness is what makes Christmas morning so beautiful and bright. And 
Paul says in Ephesians 6.12, he says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is, the heavens and earth are at war. How do we ever forget that? How do we see Christmas as anything other than it is, which is spiritual D-Day? D-Day achieved victory for all intents and purposes, but the enemy is still desperately resisting. John, the Apostle John in the book of Revelation tells us that in verses 13 through 14. And verse 17, where he describes the tantrum of a loser. It says, And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. Going on to verse 17, Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Spiritual warfare surrounds us even now every bit as much as the nativity. The war is won, but darkness is still present and the dragon is still busy. Satan knows he's lost, and so his goal in this age is to do as much damage as possible by deceiving the world as he did with Eve. To his credit, he is consistent in a one-trick pony. He wants to spin evil as good and make us think that the way of death is the way to life. One of the most haunting, recurring images and moments and symbols throughout the movie Children of Men is a product that the government puts out called Quietus. That's a very innocent-sounding name. doesn't sound peaceful. Quietus, the first uh, exposure you have to it in the movie is when uh, Theo, the protagonist, played by Clive Owen, is woken up by his alarm clock, and on the TV is playing this ad for Quietus, which you realize pretty quickly is, is, a, is a blue box with whatever powder, you sprinkle into a, a glass of water and drink, and then you die. It's euthanasia in a box. The TV ad is disturbing because it's, it's, it's of a man sitting on a nice lounge chair on a beach with waves lapping against the shore, and he's smiling, so he drinks a glass of water and gets up. He starts walking toward the ocean, and then he fades. The tagline for Quietus is, you decide when. Because in a world with no hope, where darkness is overwhelming and is, darkness's victory is inevitable, the only hope you have is to escape from present despair. The only hope that is left is to take the despair and the darkness and to put it in your own hands. Later on in the movie, uh, Theo and a friend of his, they're discussing the benefits that Quietus is advertising as part of it. Is, see, there's three benefits, and I'm going to put that in quote, air quotes, benefits, right? The government, if you, if you 
you as quietus, the government will send your next of kin $2,000. You're being paid to do this. It is guaranteed painless transition, and illegals are welcome. Now, I'm going to remind you that this movie was made in 2006, about a year and a world that existed five years from now in 2027. And that's not just chronologically too close to home, that is, that is actually too close to home. I don't know if you have, have followed this, I don't see a whole lot of people talking about it, which is even more concerning, but in Canada, they've had for a few years now a program called MADE, which is, stands for, it sounds very, also very innocent, right? Like MADE, like as in maybe a, a housekeeper or, or MADE Marian, you know, a, an innocent young woman. MAID stands for Medical Assistance and Dying. And this fall, they put out an ad campaign that instead of the tagline of you decide when, the tagline is all is beauty. All is beauty. That ad campaign included a three-minute video of a woman named Jennifer Hatch who used MAID at age 37. She had something called EDS, which is Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, uh, it's a genetic disease, it's incurable, it's barely treatable, that affects the collagen in your body. It breaks down too easy. So your skin is more stretchy and elastic than it should be, and your joints, even worse, um, the cartilage breaks down and your joints just go out of, uh, they dislocate on a whim. It's extremely painful. And in this ad that highlighted her, it included images and, and video of her with her family on the beach. I'm going to read a couple quotes that she says. The audio is her voice playing over this three-minute video. She says, I, I spent my life filling my heart with beauty, with nature, with connection. I choose to fill my final moments with the same. Last breaths are sacred. When I imagine my final days, I see music I see the ocean, I see cheesecake. That alone may not, may, may sound very understandable, especially knowing what EDS does to a person. But listen to this, what she said during a June interview that was not released before the ad campaign started. She says, I feel like I'm following through the cracks. So if I'm not able to access health care, am I then able to access death, death care? Our health care system is set up so it's really bouncing the patient around, treating symptom after symptom, and not really addressing the underlying collagen issue. I can't afford the resources that would help improve my quality of life, so it is far easier to let go than keep fighting. Next year, the, next year, the Canadian Parliament is debating whether or not to extend this benefit to children. If darkness is all there is, if its victory is inevitable, then the way of death is the way of life. You're not wrong. The only hope is escape from despair. And that is literally in every sense of the word, satanic. You see, Satan's greatest and most powerful lie 
is that darkness's victory is inevitable. And when we believe that, we think darkness wins. But darkness is not all there is. It is a lie. It is already defeated. And we can rejoice in darkness because another has already overcome it. Let's read verses 10 through 12. I skipped this portion because I'm saving it for, like, the importance of staring the darkness in the face, feeling the weight of it, is part of what rescues us from the triteness and this sugar-coatedness of Christmas to understand it in the way that it actually is in reality. And that is the triumph of the Lamb in verses 10 through 12. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. The tense of that, grammatically speaking, is the perfect tense. It means it's a past event with ongoing result. He has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have, again, perfect tense, conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. Though overwhelming, darkness has been overcome. The, the main plot for the children of men is that Theo, this apathetic, cynical man who has been living and been real about the darkness for his entire life, he is enlisted to help an illegal immigrant woman escape the country because if she's caught, she could be imprisoned and potentially executed. And up until, for the, for the first part of that movie, He's apathetic, and he is cynical. He doesn't really care. He's just in it for the money. Until a twist in the plot. This woman named Key is pregnant. She's pregnant. In a heartbeat, everything changes for him. The apathy and the cynicism disappears. It's not there at all. It seemed to have an unreleasable grip on him. And it vanishes because Theo and his ex-wife at one point had a son. His name is Dylan. He died at a very young age because of a global flu pandemic 20 years earlier. And so there's no way he was going to abandon her. He becomes her guardian and protector as they flee with the dimmest of hopes of reaching a buoy off the coast where this mysterious Good Samaritan secretive organization called the Human Project is going to come rescue them in a ship, maybe a, named a little too on the nose, maybe, tomorrow. They eventually reach the refugee, a refugee settlement off the coast near this buoy, which frankly is more of a city-sized prison camp. But as they're being smuggled into the refugee settlement, she starts having contractions. The baby is coming, and there is no room at the inn. They finally, desperately, find a, a gypsy woman 
who rents them in a language she cannot understand, they don't understand, they're able to find a room that she rents to them for a single night and it has nothing in it but a disturbingly stained mattress and a bucket of water. And the squalor, even less clean than a stable, and half as hospitable, a little girl is born. The first in 19 years. They wake up the next morning with war knocking on the door, and they are trapped in a building because terrorists who they thought were their friends, who were actually, they, they thought that this group of people was trying to help them get to the buoy, and they had to flee and run with it from them because they were actually a terrorist organization that was trying to use her baby as a political prop against the government instead of what it actually is, which is hope. Terrorists had blown a hole trying to break into prison, and as a result, the British army is following them with troops and tanks and, and air raids. They walk out into a battlefield with a, civilian ref, a city of civilian refugees in this crossfire. And at this point comes my favorite scene in the entire movie. Because when Theo and Key and her little girl become separated and she's taken by, ter- by those terrorists up to the third floor of a building that is under siege and under fire. And when he finally rescues her, there's no place to go. The terrorists are on the third floor and the army's on the bottom floor and they're converging. And so what do they do? They just go down the stairs. And you have, the, the audio is incredible because it goes from gunfire and explosions and crumbling mortar and stone to a holy silence. As refugees and fighters that they're passing realize that she's holding a baby because they can hear her crying over the din of darkness itself. And the only way, the only reason they get up Refugees that were cowering behind cover stand up to look into the cowl to see the baby's face. British soldiers who are coming up the stairs yelling to, to cover the corner and to, to, to shoot the terrorists suddenly start yelling, cease fire, cease fire. And as Theo and Key and this little girl walk out of the building, there's a battalion of soldiers in stunned silence immediately outside the door. Many of them kneel. They fall to their knees. A few, even very poignantly, in one of the very few images of the Christian religion, make the sign of the cross. But in the infant's gaze, every soul felt its worth. J.R.R. Tolkien, writing to his son, Describing the resurrection, he says, The resurrection was the greatest eucatastrophe. It's the combination of the Eucharist and catastrophe. It's shoved together. It's the greatest eucatastrophe possible and the greatest fairy or epic or cosmic, the greatest grand story. And it produces this essential emotion, Christian joy, which produces tears. Joy, which produces tears. Because it is, qual- it is qualitatively so like sorrow. Because it comes from those places where joy and sorrow are at one. That is the incarnation as well. That's Christmas. I didn't grow up understanding or knowing what Christmas was about. I had the sugar-coated Santa Claus experience growing up. 
And I liked Christmas. I mean, no, no, no kid doesn't like Christmas. But I remember the, the first Christmas after I became a Christian, I wept. Because I didn't know that there was this hidden joy that was saturating the entire thing. I had no idea that above the donkeys and the sheep were angels and demons fighting over me. And that God had actually, on Christmas morning, done the impossible, which is win a war not with a tank, but with a child. Theo and Key make it to the boat, and they row out to this buoy, and they're awaiting rescue from the ship named Tomorrow. And they just settle in, and Key, out of the blue, says to Theo, I'll name her Dylan. And he's stunned. He says, what? And she explains, well, that's a, Dylan is a girl's name and a boy's name. I want to name, it, name her after your son. There's a lot in names. Dylan is Welsh. It means born of the sea. Theodore, long for Theo, is a combination of two Greek words, theos and dore, means gift and God. In Luke chapter 2, God gave an incredible gift to a priest named Simeon. He told him that you would live to see the coming of the Messiah. He would not die, he would not pass before the Messiah came to Israel's consolation. And when Mary and Joseph took Jesus to the temple that first time, Simeon held him and blessed him and uttered these words that we now refer to as the Nunc Dimittis. He said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to your people, Israel." Nunc Dimittis is Latin. It means I can now depart. In other words, in the Brad-inspired translation, I can now die a happy man. Tragically, Theo dies right before the ship arrives, right before tomorrow comes, but not before he's given this gift implied by God is made all the brighter by the darkness because embedded in his, the name of his lost, deceased son is God's hidden promise of life that would be born at sea, the gift of tomorrow. How much more bright in any darkness is the name Emmanuel of God with us in the darkness? Go to the Q&A in just a minute. But I want to return where we started, which is the Advent is not for sissies. It's for saints. Let me read verse 12 again. The Apostle John says, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. You see, in Revelation 12, the church is symbolized by two signs, 
by both the mother that we've already talked about, because that is the mother, of, that is the people of God that birthed the Messiah, but it's also her offspring whom the devil, the devil is taking his anger and frustration out on. And so we have this dichotomy that, that verse 12, and this paradox that verse 12 articulates beautifully, that in the one sense, God has prepared a place for his people as, for, as the mother, and we are therefore eternally and spiritually hidden and secure. And simultaneously, the devil's time is short. And so he's going, the, our, his, the mother's offspring, us, we must expect the devil to take it out on us physically and temporally. It's a both and. Why? Why Advent? Advent prepares saints for both life and death by training our eyes to see that light in darkness, to see hope beyond and above despair that doesn't just overcome the darkness in the sense of it being bright despite the darkness, but it actually leverages and uses the darkness and its worst efforts against it to make that light even brighter. And so we gaze into the darkness because we can. Because the tantrum of a loser is tolerable. It's tolerable because of the triumph of the Lamb. Verse 10, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation, the power, and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, thrown down, and they have conquered him. They, God's people, has conquered them. How? Why? By the blood of the Lamb. By the word of their testimony. The spiritual forces of evil would have us believe that darkness is more than just its last gasp hysterics, but the blood of the Lamb born on Christmas morning says otherwise. Halfway through, about halfway through the movie, Children of Men, one of the people trying to help Key and rescue her and, and help Theo is a, a former midwife who doesn't have a job anymore named Miriam. Her name, by the way, is Hebrew. It means wished-for child. She says this, as the sound of the playgrounds faded, the despair set in. Very odd what happens in a world without children's voices. But then at the movie, as it ends, it fades to black. And as it fades, you hear louder and louder the sound of children laughing and playing for the first time in the entire movie. Whew. Let me see what questions we have. How do we approach the days when the darkness seems to be winning and keeping our eyes on Jesus simply seems impossible? This is very counterintuitive. Here's what I would say. Stare it down. The brightness of the light is not dependent on your ability to see. It is dependent on the one whose brightness overcame the darkness. If you stare that darkness down in even the smallest semblance of faith, I guarantee you will see the light. I think sometimes we have the most difficulty seeing Jesus because we are avoiding the darkness. 
We avoid the darkness because we don't think He's in it. He's Emmanuel. He might actually be leveraging that darkness to get our attention and love so that we would know that because He is in it, He is in, 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 with us in the midst of it, we don't, need, we don't need to fear it. Certainly not eternally or spiritually. Last question. I think you know you're cracking open a can of words, worms to make your overall point here. But are you saying that there could never be a faithful argument for medically assisted suicide? I'm not in favor of selling and embracing despair, but especially on a case-by-case basis, I think this is an extremely difficult and nuanced topic. Okay, let me say two things. One, I really appreciate you asking this question. You're right, I am opening a can of worms, and this is not an unexpected question, so thank thank you for voicing it. What I will say is this, don't go there right now. I know that that is something, a place where our, our minds often go. I do not want to relieve from you the tension and the difficulty of sitting in how contradictory on its, at its very root in the principles of it actually are. And I would encourage you that if this is something that you are wrestling with for, one, for reasons personal or political, to read a book called The Hardest Piece by Kara Tippetts. Um, it was written by the now deceased wife of a church planter in our presbytery. He's in Colorado Springs. His name is Jason Tippetts. And Kara was diagnosed with terminal breast cancer. And that book is her writing about and processing that light and darkness as someone who knew she was going to die. I encourage you to start there. And I'm going to, in a way that is probably a little bit out of character for me, I'm going to punt completely on any kind of political engagement with her because that is a distraction from the point I'm trying to make that what this communicates is that darkness wins. We can never accept that because it's already lost. In a minute, the the song that Darren and Ellie are going to lead us in for communion is one that I... uh, Ask Danny to play and lead us in every Advent season, just one time, and he rolls his eyes every time, and he said, thankfully, Darren is leading this morning, but it's a song called, called This Is War. It's, a, it's an Advent and Christmas song by Dustin Kensrew, and I'm going to read the lyrics as a, as a preparation for our, your hearing it in a moment, but it says this, this is war like you ain't seen. This winter's long, it's cold and mean. With hangdog hearts we stood condemned, but the tide turns now at Bethlehem. This is war, and born tonight, the word is flesh, the Lord of light. This is war, the Son of God, the lowborn King, whom demons fear, of whom angels sing. This is war on sin and death. The dark will take its final breath. It shakes the earth, confounds all plans. The mystery of God is man.
on the night that Jesus faced the darkness and was betrayed by one of his friends. He was even then in the midst of brokenness and said, this body, this bread is my body, it is broken for you. Take and eat. Likewise, he took the cup and he says, this cup, this wine is the blood of the new covenant. It is given for the remission of sins. It is that which dissolves the darkness and defeats it. It is by the blood of the lamb that darkness has been overcome, that Satan's time is short. And often, as often as you eat that, this bread and drink this wine, he says, you proclaim my death until I return. You proclaim every bit as much as the angels proclaimed his birth, we have the privilege and the joy of proclaiming that Satan is done for, that the blood of the lamb has overcome, and the triumph of the lamb is our new ultimate spiritual reality, and therefore we need fear no darkness ever again. If that, I don't want to say if that is your hope even a little, I'm going to say, if that is your longing, if that is your longing, this is for you. Let's pray.